believe. We are now in the sixth week of our series on belief, which encompasses not just the message, but the entirety of our church. And if you have been reading in your believe material, which is really scripture, just interlaced with, with commentary, if you've been attending an Ohana group and talking about these concepts, these beliefs, if you've been listening actively to the messages, I believe that you are growing deeper in your understanding and conviction about these foundational beliefs of the faith. First, that the God of the Bible is the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, that God cares about and is involved in our daily life and experience. Third, that we come into relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Fourth, that the Bible is the Word of God and that it has the right to determine our beliefs and our action. And then last weekend, we talked about believing that we are significant because of our position as children of God. Not because of our performance, not because of our vocation, not because of our successes or our failures, but because we belong to Christ. That's our identity. And this week we come to a sixth key or foundational belief, and it's about the church. It's on the cover of your bulletin. It's up on the screen. And um, I want us to read that together. Maybe some of you will need to read it by faith, but let's do so. I believe the church is God's primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth. What is the church? I mean, maybe in some of your minds, you picture when you hear the word church, a building. I go to the church on the corner of Cocoa Head and Harding. It's a building. Others think of a worship service. You may ask someone, well, do you go to church on Friday evening or Sunday morning? A worship service. Still others, when they hear the word church, they think of it as an institution. I gave a donation to the church. Now, each of those has merit. Uh, each of those is used in our culture to express a facet of the church. But if you've studied the New Testament to any depths, you know that church is people. It comes from a word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in, Koine Greek, and it was the word ekklesia, which meant the called out ones, called out of the world to be a special people, God's people. That's what the church is, and that's what I'm going to be referring to in this message because that's what is meant in the New Testament. In fact, it's used almost a hundred times, and almost every time it's used, it's speaking of a local church. A couple times it refers to the church universal, but almost every other time it's a particular local church in a given area. In your reading this week, you're going to be reading about hints of the church that are buried deep in the Old Testament. You'll read about Acts chapter 2, where there's the birth of the church. And then on through Acts, you'll read more about the expansion of the church. And then the letters that were written to give instruction to the churches in various locales as they were planted in that early movement. One of those letters Paul wrote to the church 
at Ephesus. We call it the Ephesians letter. And it so focuses on the church. But he uses a particular word that relates to the church. In fact, it relates to the gospel of Christ and how the church relates to that. And here's the word. It's in the original language in there. It's called musterion. Musterion. Can you imagine what word we get from that in our English language? Mystery. It's akin to mystery, but it's different. In the English language, when we think of the word mystery, we think of something you can never fully grasp. That's a mystery. Something that is hard to wrap our minds around. But when musterion is used in the New Testament, it means something that wasn't known, but has now been made known. It's been revealed. And in this short letter, Paul uses that word five times. Significant, right? And so he's conveying something very interesting here about what has been revealed by God. He begins in the first chapter where he's talking about what God has done through Christ. And then he says this in verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. He purchased us with his blood shed on the cross. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Hold on to that for just a moment. So he extended to us redemption and forgiveness, but he did so in all wisdom and understanding. He knew who we were, and he still did it. Isn't that amazing? He knew all the, the ugly things that we would be and do, but he did it. Why? Because he lavished his grace upon us. We're recipients of God's unmerited favor, his grace, which he's extended to us. And then he says this, verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So what is the mystery? He hasn't told us yet. Still a mystery. He's getting there, but he's telling us that now, in the fullness of time, God's laying out. He's disclosing, he's revealing this mystery. Now, when I reflected on Paul's use of the word mystery as it pertains to the gospel and the church this past week, I thought, even though there's a difference, there are similarities and parallels between this mystery and a good mystery novel or a mystery movie. Now, remember, there's a difference. The, the, the gospel is true. These are often fiction. Okay? But there are parallels. And I want to call your attention to some of them because it might bring to light some things that maybe you've not understood. What does a good mystery novel have? What is it? It's a whodunit, right? Whodunit. Who committed the crime? And so most of that novel or most of that show is about finding out who's responsible for what has happened, the crime that has been committed. Well, let's look at some of the parallels between a good mystery novel and the gospel and 
how it relates to the church. Here's the first. It's in your bulletin. The mystery of the church, as in the best whodunits, was sprinkled with clues. Over the last several months, Dee and I have kind of gotten hooked on some of the mystery series, British mystery series that are on Netflix. Uh, one in particular that we really enjoyed was called Foyle's War. Foyle was a detective in the south of England during World War II, and he's always tracking down things. I'd recommend that one. We started watching a while back one called Inspector Morse. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this one, but we, we've watched several of these. And uh, he is a detective in Oxford, England. The write-up on him says he has a taste for beer and a nose for crime. And uh, even drinks on the job. This particular es episode that we watched the other night was called The Wolvercoat Tongue. And the Wolvercoat Tongue was a piece of medieval jewelry which had been lost for centuries, part of it. Part of it was in a museum in Oxford, England. Part of it was uh, lost for several centuries, but then recovered. They found it in the Thames River. And so in this series, there's a tour group coming from America, and among that tour group are Mr. and Mrs. Poindexter. She owns the other part of that Wolvercoat tongue. The other part's in a museum in Oxford. And they are coming on this tour group because she wants to donate it back to the museum and have these pieces joined back together. And everything's going well until the tour group arrives. They check into their hotel. Mr. Poindexter, her new husband, goes on a walk with another woman from the tour group. He comes back to the hotel room to find his wife is dead. Oh, now we have uh, some intrigue building here. And so they call in the medical examiner. And by the time Inspector Morse gets there, He's completed the exam, and he tells the inspector, no mystery here, she died of a massive coronary. And uh, her husband says she's long suffered with some heart problems, so that's it. Well, then they discover the Wolvercoat tongue is missing. Wow, okay. There's something more here, Inspector Morse says. A and who took it? And was this really a natural death? Or was this murder? And so he begins looking for clues in the balance. Most of that show is looking for clues as to what, what might have happened here. Who, who murdered Mrs. Poindexter and why did they do it? And what did they do with that Wolvercoat tongue? And so they're piecing the clues together, Inspector Morse in particular, to get to that answer. Well, when you think about Paul's use of mystery as relates to the gospel in the church, were there clues? There sure were. If you look in the Old Testament, there's one clue after another. Uh, in fact, he refers to that in chapter 3. Paul says this as he continues. He said, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, this mystery of the gospel was revealed to Paul by the risen Christ. And he's already spoken of it in chapter 1 briefly. And then he says, In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, 
as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So it had been signaled through clues through the apostles and the prophets, and now Paul's going to reveal it in just a moment here. But let's revisit some of those clues. For instance, when God spoke through Moses and he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, buried in there in Genesis, is God's promise to Abraham that through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a clue. Because when you think of Abraham, you think of Abraham, Isaac, his son, Jacob, who had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And you think, well, I can see the blessing flowing to the nation of Israel. Oh, no. This was for all families of the earth. That's an early clue. Then you get, that was 1800 B.C., you get to 700 B.C., and Isaiah the prophet is speaking for God to the nation of Israel. And he says something really significant. He says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. What? They weren't even thinking like that. They were thinking, it's on us. We're the chosen people of God. Gentiles, if, if they want to know God, they can become Jewish by religion. It's called a proselyte who comes into the Jewish faith. And, but no, the, the prophet Isaiah is saying, I'm going to make you as a nation a light to the ends of the earth so that salvation will come to the Gentiles. That was a clue. Jeremiah, another prophet who spoke to Israel just before the captivity, about 606 B.C., he talked about God raising up a righteous branch and putting into effect a new covenant by which people's sins would be forgiven. That really should have startled the Jews because they only knew of one covenant. The covenant that God had made with them through Moses on Mount Sinai, the law. Why would they need a new covenant? That was a clue about what God was planning and preparing to do. But then a, another amazing clue comes in the New Testament. When Jesus, in the midst of his ministry, speaking to Jewish people, said, I am the good shepherd. That's startling in and of itself because... They knew the Lord was their shepherd. David had said that, but other Old Testament writers referred to God as being the shepherd of Israel. And here comes Jesus and says, I'm the good shepherd. But he said more than that, which was an amazing clue. He said this, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. What? Who... Who would these sheep be that are not of this sheep pen, the Jewish corral, in essence? They should have be, been wondering about that and, and, and started asking some questions, but they missed the clues, didn't they? Would we have seen them? Eh, probably not. You know, when I watch these mysteries, I, can't, I have a hard time sorting all these things out, but, but they were there. These clues were there. And then Jesus makes it even clearer to Peter. When Peter makes the good confession saying, I believe that you are the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus affirms that and, among other things, tells him, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. So there's another very clear clue that 
something is to come into being called the church, which will be the foundation of the faith. So when you think of the mystery of the gospel, it was sprinkled with clues before it ever came into being. Secondly, the mystery of the church as in the best whodunits contained the element of surprise. The wolvercoat tongue was a surprise. Let me explain what happened. I mean, they've got all these clues and they're looking at all these suspects throughout this show. I mean, Mrs. Poindexter's new husband um, why was he out with that other woman on a, a, just a walk around Oxford when she died? And, and then why was he seen later on a train shortly after Mrs. Poindexter's death with another woman, a young woman? That's a key suspect. There's probably a lot of insurance money to be made on this overcoat tongue. And what about the jilted lover of the director of the museum who was to inherit that piece? I mean, she was angry at him. Maybe it's her. And so you're looking at all these different people and wondering who killed Mrs. Poindexter when toward the end of the show we realize she died of a massive coronary. Nobody killed her. And what happened to Mr. Poindexter? Well, he had been reunited with his long-lost daughter. That's who he was with. So he's off the hook there. And what happened to the Wolvercoat tongue? Well... He thought that it should go to where it belonged. So he threw it back into the Thames River. That was a surprise. And there were lots of other surprises too. But uh, a good mystery has all of those in it and more. So with the mystery of the church. Do you know that the church was an amazing surprise to the people who heard about it? There were clues, hadn't seen them. And Paul explains the surprise, the mystery. Here it is in verse 6 of chapter 3. This mystery, are you ready? Is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. What? Yeah. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel or this good news by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Did you see that? He's saying the, the mystery that was hidden before but is now made known is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with you Jewish folks. And, and they belong to the same body. They're not only that, but they're sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus or the Messiah. The Jews thought the Messiah was only for Israel. Oh, no. He was for Jews and Gentiles to bring you into one body. And then he says this, Although I am less of, than the least of God, all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The New American Standard uses the term the unfathomable riches of Christ. In other words, you can't get to the depths of it. You can't plummet all that is involved in the wealth that is yours in Christ as you've come to be placed in his body. And to make plain to everyone the administration or management of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Would this have been a surprise to the Jewish people? 
it would have been a shock. Because after all, they were God's chosen people, right? They were the chosen people of God. The Gentiles, they're pagans. They're idolaters. They would pray every morning thanking God they were not born a Gentile. And now to hear that they're all in one body, fellow heirs, and in the promises of the Messiah, shocking to the Jewish people. What about to the Gentiles? Yeah, just as stunning to hear that. I mean, they had no love for the Jews generally. Some that believed in God had submitted to becoming Jewish. Now they realize, no, they didn't need to become Jews. They could become followers of the Messiah and be fellow heirs in the church with the Jews. Paul devotes most of chapter 2 in this letter to this explanation. And, and, and let me tell you, illustrate how he did that. Let's say this morning that you folks over here are Jewish people. You're, you're, you're followers of God and believe in, in the Old Covenant. And you folks uh, are Gentiles. And, but you've come to faith in Christ. And, and now you guys have as well. And then Paul says, there's been a big barrier between the two of you. A wall, a dividing wall. But it's been knocked down. And now you're no longer Jews or Gentiles. You are Christians, followers of Christ, members of the body of Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, in essence. And then he says this, and listen to how this would have sounded to the Gentiles. You folks are the Gentiles. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So the church is a building. But it's not made of inanimate bricks and mortar or old stones it's as Peter the Apostle said, it's made of living stones. People, Jews and Gentiles, who've come to faith in Christ, who are being built into a holy temple to bring praise to God. That's the building that God is making with living stones. In fact, you got those bricks there. I don't know if you noticed them on the cover of your bulletin and could determine the ethnicity of each of those bricks, but... I studied that this week, and I thought, yes. One is Jewish and one's Gentile. Can you tell which is which? The one on the bottom is definitely Jewish, saying, I was here first. But the one on top says, yes, but I'm part of this building too. I'm not sure how theologically accurate that is, but I just, I just want you to know how profound my thinking is when I come to these things. Anyway, the church is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And that was a surprise. Laced with clues, a surprise. There's one more element in this mystery, and that is the mystery of the church, as in the best whodunits, displays the brilliance of the sleuth. Sleuth is a detective, a gumshoe, an inspector. Well, one more time and briefly, I'll return to Inspector Morse. He's relentless. He, he pursues these things, and he's always thinking, you know. 
Usually he has a beer in his hand. It helps him think. And uh, he won't take at face value what appears to be the case. Oh, no, he's always asking questions. He's always thinking about it. He also has an apprentice by the name of Sergeant Lewis. Sergeant Lewis is not the brightest, and he occasionally stumbles on a good thought, but uh, I see a pattern in these detective shows. Usually you have someone like that. It's kind of like with Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, if you've ever read any of that material. You may have heard the, the story about Sherlock Holmes and the inspector with London Yard and, and his associate, Dr. Watson, they went on a camping trip one time. And uh, they pitched their tent, they had a fire, they drank a bottle of wine, lay down to sleep. And after several hours, Sherlock wakes up and he nudges Watson and says, Watson, yeah. He said, look up and tell me what you see. He said, I see millions of stars. What does that tell you, Watson? Well, it tells me astronomically that, that there must be billions of stars and planets out there. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Um, I don't know. Uh, meteorologically, it, it tells me that it's going to be a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, it tells me that God is awesome in what he can do in his creation. So, Holmes, what does that tell you? Holmes thinks for a moment and says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> so, he didn't quite put the clues together and neither did the folks when the church was coming down the pike. And that often happens, but Detective Inspector Morris always does. In fact, in this particular show, he's putting these clues together. I'm totally confused. I think Dee probably figured it out. But uh, he's piecing it together, and he lays it out, and he says, Oh, no. No, it wasn't Mr. Poindexter, and it wasn't this woman, and, and this is what happened. And uh, he figured out who had to have taken the wolfer coat tongue, and it displayed... Inspector Morse's brilliance. That's, that always happens in these shows, by the way. Well, in the mystery of the gospel and the administration of the gospel, which is entrusted to the church, displays God's brilliance, the sleuth, the detective. Look what Paul says in verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His eternal purpose was to rescue and redeem fallen mankind. And he would do that through the coming of Christ into the world. So what's the administration of the mystery entrusted to the church to get that news out there? And how do we do that? Well, in all kinds of ways. And that relates to the purpose of the church, which I'll get to in a moment, but I have to first say this. In a mystery, a whodunit is asking the question is, who's guilty of the crime? When it comes to the gospel, the gospel made it obvious who done it. We done it. We're the ones, aren't we? 
that have been exposed. We're the ones that the gospel says are guilty of ignoring God, being indifferent to God, rebelling against God, hating God, acting in our own sinful ways, being oblivious to his righteous ways. We're guilty. We've done it. We're responsible. And we deserve death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. The gospel solves all that. God makes it clear to us. But here's the deal. This is really important. Not only did God solve the issue of who done it, he resolved the punishment for those who are guilty by coming himself into this sinful world and paying the price. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's grace extended to sinful people. And, and, and when we are redeemed from the world and we come together as the church and we begin to live out who we are in Christ, you know what it does? It displays the brilliance, the manifold wisdom of God who solved the crime and resolved the punishment for the crime. And so whenever we are doing what the church is called to do, sharing this mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed, he and his wisdom are put on display. Take a look at this brief video about what is the church? What is church? Is it a building? With some pews? A piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. So when we, as the church, are building schools in Kenya, in the slums of Mathari Valley, when we're through Global Hope seeing Muslim villages reached in Asia because 
there's agricultural developments there and health and prevention kinds of things happening and the gospel is being shared. When we're extending the gospel to various parts of the world through our mission task force, when we send people out uh, with Love Your Neighbor to paint over graffiti on Wiley Avenue or pick up trash or do free home repair in the community, when we do these things as a church and when we are dispersed as a church into the community through the week uh, to minister to other people that we work with, to love the unlovely, to care for people at the river of life, uh, to just serve our neighbors when they're in need. That is the church displaying the manifold wisdom of God, that he would take sinful people, pull them together into one body from all backgrounds, and display his glory through them. Now, before I close, I have to mention, in verse 9, Paul said it was his call to bring to light what is the administration of the church to convey this message. In other words, the church is responsible. Each local church is responsible to display the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, Christ said we are to make disciples. And in making disciples... We are producing people in the church that are living out the faith and displaying his glory. And so it is incumbent upon the leadership of every local church to do that as effectively as they can. Because it's easy to get distracted, right? I mean, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, and Princeton, those all started out as theological institutions to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, but every one of them has drifted from that and become involved in all kinds of things. Do you know churches do that too? And we do that here and there as well. That's why for the last 20-some years that I've been here, and even before that certainly was the case, we've attempted to stay on task for the Lord. And that's why we've, for instance, in our core values over here, identified from the purpose-driven church these are five areas that we need to be engaged in as a church. Too often churches will just be really heavy into one of those areas or maybe two of those areas, whatever the pastor is excited about usually. But a healthy church, as Rick Warren pointed out so many years ago, is engaged in all of these. And if you're balanced in these areas, you're going to be healthy. If you're healthy, you're going to grow, you're going to make disciples. And then most recently, our leadership is in engaged in trying to focus on being a simple church that makes disciples and not engaged in all kinds of activities that take us off track. So we've identified the Keala Oyesu, the path of Jesus. You can't hardly see it here, but there's four bases here. And we want every believer, each of us, to be engaged in moving on in our discipleship Loving God through engaging in worship services and the teaching of the word. But then being involved in an ohana group as well where we grow deep in our love for one another and care for one another, understanding of the word. And then serving the Lord through uh, a ministry, ministry team as well as personal ministry. And then reaching the lost, praying for lost people, taking responsibility in our sphere, wherever God's placed us, to reach out, to share the good news of this mystery that has now been made known. Now, as we've done this, it's created some frustration, especially in the last several months, for some engaged in various ministries in our church, as we've prayed and struggled as a leadership to determine which ministries really contribute to this 
and which kind of take us off the track. Because have you ever in your own life uh, found that you got a lot of activities happening in your life, but though they're good activities, they don't all help you to serve the Lord. Sometimes they just keep you busy. Churches do the same thing. And so pray with us that we might be able to more effectively focus on what God calls us to be and do as a church so that we can make disciples living out their lives to display the brilliance of God in calling us out of this world to live for him. As we do so, wow, we'll be blessed and God will be glorified. It's happening. We see hints of it when the Kaimuki Business and Professional Association several years ago uh, in their 64th annual Christmas parade uh, selected Kaimuki Christian Church to be the Grand Marshal. That said, wow, they're seeing that God's brilliance is on display. It isn't that we're brilliant. It's that he could take a bunch of folks like us and use us to bless a community. That's what God wants to do through each of our lives and through our lives together. But I want to challenge you to be part of the church in a real way. Not, a per, not an attender, not someone who's on the periphery of the church, but someone who's fully engaged. A couple of steps that you might consider taking if you've not is to not only believe in Jesus, but to make a public commitment to him in baptism. Believe and be baptized. Make that decision today if you've not. Become a part of this church. We have in early December our next up to bat small group, a couple of weeks, where you can become a member of this church. I urge you, if you're not a member, become a member. What about the rest of us? Well, we can recommit ourselves to growing as disciples of Christ and helping others to do so. However he's gifted us, wherever he's placed us in this church so that we might go out and display the brilliance of the one who's called us from darkness into light. In fact, Jesus said this, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. That's the purpose of the church, is to bring glory to him. Let's return now to this affirmation, and I would like to ask you to just declare it with faith if you're able to do so. I believe the church is God's primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you that you've revealed this, that you've brought the church into existence. Lord, thank you that you've called each of us by your grace, through faith in your son Jesus, into this body of believers and into the church universal which has been redeemed by your blood. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.